So follow along with me as we read Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that he would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not only for one party, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up into the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. All right, we'll go dig that in in a minute because we are in part five of our series. That's last week's. I never repaired the graphics. That's last week's graphic. This week's graphic is at the end, um, and it's called The Law Came Later. We've been looking our, working our way through the first three chapters of Galatians, wrapping up today, and we've been looking at this struggle between a culture which had been based on Jewish culture that God had given, which included the law, which included the Ten Commandments and all the different rules of how you got to dress and what you got to eat and not eat and when you can work and when you can't and all these rules that God had given to the Jews to create this covenantal relationship and how that had become so tied to being a child of Yahweh that at this point they oftentimes couldn't tell the difference. And so they thought, hey, you have to follow these rules in order to be included. And there were these guys who had showed up from Jerusalem purporting to be from the Jerusalem church, from James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, 
saying, listen, this is what God wants. You want to follow Jesus? That's great. Hey, that's wonderful. But you still need to do these things to be included as part of God's people. To, to belong, to include, to be part of the community is to be defined by following these rules. So you had this battle between culture and community and what makes you a good follower or member of God's people, God's community. We saw that last week, Paul reached back to Abraham to say, hey, listen, Abraham wasn't Jewish. Abraham founded the Jewish nation, but he himself wasn't Jewish when he was born. The Jews didn't exist yet, and God created them out of Abraham's offspring. And so it wasn't being a Jew or following the law that made Abraham good. It was because Abraham believed God, and God declared him righteous. So he picks that up, and that takes us into Galatians 3. So the first little bit here, if you look at verses 10 through 14, he ties back into Abraham, and depending on your translation, my translation, uh, when it quotes the Old Testament, it puts it in um, all caps, so you can tell he's quoting the Old Testament, which for them, was their, that's their Bible, because they obviously didn't have the New Testament yet. Paul's writing it right here. And in 10, 11, 12, and 13, I have him quoting the Bible in all four of those texts, all four of those verses. As he pulls back, he's in verse 10, he's quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26, where it said, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So he says, hey, if you don't keep it perfect, then you're cursed. Now that's a standard. You don't get it completely right, then you're cursed. So you say, well, nobody can do it perfect. Right, that's a problem. So what had happened over the decades and the centuries of Jewish teaching, the rabbis had taught that that was aspirational, not prescriptive. In other words, what it means is try your best, but nobody can get it. Because they knew, the rabbis knew, nobody can get it perfect, so the rabbis had taught that God could not demand perfect obedience. The rabbis taught that, that God didn't demand perfect obedience because perfect obedience was impossible. Which we go, yeah, well, good. Hey, you know, I'll do my best, but, I mean, nobody's perfect. So the first thing Paul does is says, actually, that's not what the Bible says. Actually, it says you are supposed to be perfect. So he's actually tightening it up from the Pharisees, which is a weird thing. Whoa, what? You're making it worse than the Pharisees? He says, yeah, actually the Pharisees have downplayed that too much. They've loosened it too much. The Bible says you have to be perfect. Well, if you can't get out of it with, well, just try your best, which is what the Pharisees had done, well, then he said, well, what's the, what do you do? Well, Paul explains that in the next verse, verse 11. He says, but being perfect isn't going to get you it. A, you can't do it, and no one just justified by the law. How do you live by faith? He says, so the law does demand that you be perfect, but that's not how you're going to live. You're going to live by faith, not a result of law. Verse 13, he says, Christ has freed you from that because Christ took the curse. He says, because verse 12, if you're going to live by it, you have to live by all of it. He goes, you can't sit there and go, you have to follow the law, but it's okay if you don't do it perfectly. He says, you can't make, that's not biblical. You can't argue that you're supposed to be perfect, but it's okay if you're not. He says, but there's a different way to live, which is let Christ take care of the curse of not being perfect and live by faith. 
And so he brings up this Old Testament teaching of faith and says the contrast is between trying to be good and not being able to and knowing you can't be and trusting Jesus instead. And so then he says Christ has become the curse. So then in verse 14, he brings it all together in the final point. So he brings up the curse of disobedience. Teacher said God couldn't demand perfect obedience. Paul says, yes, you can. He says in verse 14, the point is that Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He says, so how are you going to get the promise of the Spirit? The blessing of God. How are you going to get what God has for you? He goes, not by how good you do, but by faith through Jesus. It's going to be given to you. You're going to receive it. Not through your heritage, Jewish heritage, not through your following the law. Well, then that brings up a question. Now, hang on. If we don't need the law to be okay with God, well, then why did he give it? I mean, we've got, like, there's a lot in here about the law. And they had focused on the law a long time, and we got the Ten Commandments and all that, and they were like, well, wait a minute. That seems like if, if you don't need it, why give it? So Paul answers that question in verse 15. What about the law? Well, actually, well, first, so he says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relationships. What he means there, he says, for a minute, let's just talk about what happens in, in human life. When two guys make an agreement, he goes, when two people make an agreement and they ratify it, then there's two things you can't do. You can't just suddenly change it, and you can't just ignore it, because you have a deal. You know, if you make a, if you make a deal for a car or a piece of property, whatever, once you've ratified it, you've both signed it, you're both bound by that. And one person can't just change the rules of the deal, and you can't just ignore the rules of the deal. He says, and that's how humans work. He goes, now God made a deal with Abraham... And then verse 17, he says, and the law, which you guys are so attached to, that didn't show up until 430 years later. He says, and the deal that God made with Abraham, verse 16, he says, was Jesus. He says, because he promised Abraham a seed. And he goes, and it wasn't seeds. Because what would it be? Seeds. Well, his descendants. He goes, but it wasn't plural, it was singular. It was, the promise was Jesus. That's what he says. To your seed, that is Christ, verse 16. He says, so the promise to Abraham was Jesus, and the law didn't show up until 430 years later. Now, just think about that. Think about even how that hits us. And we're not like religious Jews. But where the law, they, they, their whole understanding of their relationship with God had become completely synonymous with following the law. They understood even they had, they had internalized that part of why they got thrown out of the land was because they hadn't kept the law, which was a misunderstanding of what God had told them of what the problem was. But they had completely equated following Yahweh with following the rules, following God's law. And think about today. I mean, how much do we still emphasize the Ten Commandments? And he says, that law thing, that came a lot later. 
How many people from Abraham to Abraham's kids to his grandkids to his great-grandkids to his great-great-grandkids, 430 years worth of people who follow Yahweh are part of the community of Yahweh and they don't even have the law. Paul's saying this law that is now you're being told you can't follow Yahweh without it, that's actually a fairly new thing because it didn't show up until 430 years after Abraham was pleasing to God. He says in verse 18, the inheritance of Abraham, the blessing, is not based on the law. Verse 18, if the inheritance is based on law, then it's no longer based on the promise that God gave Abraham. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And what is the promise? Verse 16, it's Jesus. So the blessings don't come through the law. Abraham didn't get it from the law. Abraham's 430 years too early for the law. He got it because God promised it to him. He says, and that's how we get it. The blessings of God, God's blessing, when you see the word inheritance, you you can translate that into blessing because that's how they understood inheritance. You inherit the blessing. What What do you get? You get the blessing. Inheritance is a blessing. How do you get the blessing? Righteousness, blessing. It's based on a promise, not on law. Well, then why would he even give the law? Verse 19. So why does he give the law? Is the law contrary? He says, why the law then? Verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed, which we know is Jesus from verse 16, the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Until Jesus came to his people, the law was given because of transgressions. In other words, he says, well, man, if you don't need the law to be good, then why do we have the law? He says, because you guys were just blowing it. Because you guys were doing terrible things, so I tried to just stop you being mean to each other. Basically, what it boils down to, you guys were just awful, so you needed the law to kind of keep you like a babysitter. In fact, that's what he calls it. He uses the word tutor. Until Jesus could come along, you needed something just to keep you out of trouble. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promise? So does the law not work with the promise? He goes, no, may it never be. But then he makes this point. If a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. He goes, so the law is not contrary to God's plan. The the law is not contrary to the promise, but it's not how you get it. It's not the path. And this is a huge statement here in 19. I'm sorry, in in 21. He goes, if the law could have given you life, then, then that would have been something. If you could get the life of God by following the law, then he'd give you the law to give you life. He goes, but that's not how it works. It comes through promise. Righteousness doesn't come based on the law. Now, we just have to come back to that because that doesn't just mess with their mind. That messes with ours. He says, righteousness doesn't come based on the law. Righteousness doesn't come based on the law. How do we define righteousness to this day? Are you keeping the law? 
How do you know how good you are? Are you keeping the Ten Commandments? He says, that's not how you measure righteousness. Because that's how we measure righteousness. What is it? Instead, he says, it's a tutor. It's to teach you. What is it? Whoop, I'm all over the place here. It's a tutor to teach you. Verse 24. It says, faith came, we're kept under custody. There's a babysitter. Shut up to be the faith which was revealed when Jesus showed up. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. We think the law is going to lead us to goodness. How do, I, how do I get good? I study the law and obey it. He says, no, that's not what the law was designed for. The law was to lead you to Jesus. The law is a tutor not to teach you how to be good, but to teach you that you need Jesus. Verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus. What includes you? What makes you a child of God? What makes you part of the community? He says, by faith, not your works or lineage, not by what you've done, not by who you are, but by Jesus. You are a child because of Jesus, not because of you. Your faith in Jesus. Verse 27, he uses metaphors to try to picture this. He says, you've been clothed with Jesus. He's drawing back to the idea that the priests, when the priests did their priestly duties and went into the temple, the first thing they had to do is they had to get dressed. It was very important how they dressed. In fact, the law had a ton of rules about how you dressed for temple to be acceptable to God. Even down to talking about how the fabric was weaved. And so when a priest dressed, it was to dress to be acceptable. He says, and now you know how you're dressed? What clothes you? Jesus. That's what makes you acceptable. That's your robe that allows you to come into the presence of God. You are clothed, you're covered in Jesus. And then as he's wrapping this up, he goes big to what we do as humans. He lists all the ways that humans separate themselves from each other. Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male versus female. He says, none of that matters, you're one in Christ. He says, it's not about human separators, it's not about the ways that we set ourselves apart from one another. Jew versus Greek would have been religious and racial. Slave versus free, of course, is economic. Male versus female, of course, is gender. He says, and these natural human separators do not matter, are not part of this equation. He says in verse 29, it's just Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are a descendant, you are an heir of promise. Just if you know Jesus. Jesus is the key. So let's pack this through, unpack this, apply it in our discussion. The first is we love to add the human separators. We love to add the human separators because we take different things and we make them crucial. Other beliefs, human traits, human actions... When I was a lot younger, living in a different place, there was a Christian school nearby, and one of the kids that I had in youth group at the time went to this Christian school. Uh, she didn't go to the church that the school um, was in, but it was, a, it was a very strict school, very strict church. Now, if you were to take what that church believes and what we believe, I don't think you'd find any difference in major doctrine. We both believe the same thing about God, both believe the same thing about Jesus. Both believe the same thing about how you get saved. Both believe the same thing about the Bible. All the big stuff, 
probably no difference whatsoever. But this church was conservative in other areas. Now, I wasn't going to church. I was going to the building, but I wasn't going on a Sunday morning to Sunday morning worship. I was going to a Tuesday afternoon drama performance of the drama club of the Christian school because my youth group kid was in the play. So I'm going to a play. But it was at a Christian school in a church building. And they were very offended by my footwear. I had my sneakers. And the sneakers I had at the time, and I'm, of course I'm wearing my boots today, but the sneakers I had were Velcro. They had the kind of, you know, instead of shoelaces, had the Velcro. This is a long time ago. All the teenagers were like, oh, he's so old. Yeah. They were very cool at the time. Very cool. Had the Velcro sneakers. And I, now, I don't know why. To this day, I couldn't tell you why that was a problem, but it was a problem. They didn't say anything to me, but my, my kid later said, oh, they were very upset about your shoes. Why? I don't know. But somehow, I mean, I've been looking for the anti-Velcro verses in the law. Probably something I've missed. But they were offended, and so the next time I was going to come to something for school, a message was sent to me through my student of how I should dress to be acceptable. That's a human separator. But it was big. It was a secondary thing. But we all do that. I saw a statement on social media in the last couple of days from a pastor who I am, I am quite certain that when it comes to the major doctrines of our faith, from the identity of God to the identity of Jesus to the, the inspiration of the Bible and the, the plan of salvation, that me and this guy would have absolutely no difference whatsoever. We both believe the exact same thing. But the statement was, if you vote Democrat, you can't be a Christian. You can't follow God. Wow. I'm like, that would be a revelation to several predominantly African-American churches that are heavily democratic. But it was, there's a rule. There's a rule. You can't really be a follower of God if you vote wrong. What's that? That's a human separator. Based on the Bible? No. Well, our party is pro-life. Yeah, uh-huh. But you're creating a new standard of salvation now that you don't belong if you don't understand the issues the same way as I do. And I'm, I'm pro-life all the way. But it's now we're going to add, and it wasn't even about voting pro-life. It was about you just can't be a Democrat because all the true followers of God, as Moses said, belong to the party of Lincoln and don't wear Velcro because these are the standards. And he says, these are human separators. Whether it be racial or political or practical, we add these other things in. The Bible says to be baptized. Do you know, nowhere in the Bible does it say how to get baptized? Now, from what we understand, what Jewish baptism looked like is they put you underwater. We call it immersion. Does the Bible tell us how to baptize? There's not a word. It just says do it. But there are those who would say, well, if you didn't get baptized the right way, well, then you're not a child of God. Well, it doesn't say that. That's a human thing. What's the one thing that makes you right with God? Jesus. It's the only thing that makes you right with God is Jesus. There is no other way to get right with God. And once you're right with God, you can't get righter. That's why I want to use the idea of rental versus buy. 
Once you've paid for something and you've paid it in full, you don't have to keep buying it. It's yours. And our salvation, once you've been declared righteous by God, it's paid for. That's what he, Jesus, those are his exact words, paid in full. We don't rent our salvation. We don't make it on payments. And if you miss a payment, oh boy, you're in trouble now. Do you still have it? Did God repossess your salvation because you voted the wrong way? Or because you wore Velcro? Because you messed up? The one thing that makes you right with God is Jesus. That's what it says. It says if there had been a law that could make you right with God, then you could go that way. But there is no law that makes you right with God. You follow every one of the Ten Commandments. And of course, even the Jewish teacher said, well, you can't do it perfectly. Right. But even if you could, he says, that's not a way to please God. But that messes with us because to this day, why do we even now in our culture, we get pretty defensive about the Ten Commandments. They try to take them out off the wall or move the monument, whatever. We're like, hey, we need those Ten Commandments. Why? Because that's how you learn how to please God. No, it's not, actually. He said you can't please God through them. That messes with our thing, doesn't it? Because we know that God wants us to be good. If we're not good, He's not happy. We're not pleasing. But we are declared, it said, your, your, your justification can only come through faith. When we often rest our faith on things we can do or be. I know some people get really annoyed because I kind of continually go after the whole pray-to-prayer formulation. And if you prayed the prayer and you're like, that's how I got saved, I prayed a prayer, that's great. But the reason I go after that formulation is because it's focusing your faith on something you did. So they say, now, how do you know you're saved? Because I prayed a prayer. Because I did something. I'm saved because I did something. Well, the minute you're, so then your confidence rests on you. So when we start talking about having assurance that you're saved, how do you know you're saved? That's the question, right? How do you know that if you died, you'd go to heaven? How do you know that you're right with God? And that question causes us to go, okay, all right, let me think. How do I know I'm right with God? And we start going things like, well, I, I did this. And for a lot of us, this is, I prayed a prayer. But then that thing, because your confidence, your, that's what you're holding on to, so then you start having that little nagging thing of, well, I hope I did it right. I hope I, I, hope I meant it enough. I hope I said the right words. I hope that I, I hope that I, I hope that I. And why do you feel insecure? Because you're not confident in your work. And well, you should not be. Because your work cannot save you. Pray all the prayers in the world. Do you know how many people pray all the time? And the act of praying does not earn favor with God. Now, why did you pray? Why did you pray the prayer? So you say, well, I prayed a prayer. Well, did that save you? I hope so. Well, why did you pray it? Well, I prayed it because I knew that I couldn't be saved on my own and that God provided salvation for me. <laughs> Boom! That's what saves you. The faith saves you. 
if you're here today, I don't care if you prayed, how you prayed, when you prayed, how many times you prayed. What matters is, do you know that the only way you're accepted by God is His work, not yours? That Jesus did the work for you, that Jesus died, and because of what Jesus did, you're okay. Then that's salvation. Boom, you're there. That's salvation. That's his point today. He says, all this comes from Jesus' work, not yours. And when you believe him, that's it. When you believe him, that's it. So then the question is, do you believe him? And if you find yourself constantly going back to your confidence in yourself, then maybe you're like, well, do I believe him? And so then what we do from there is we turn the law into a path of righteousness instead of merely a teacher. How do I be a good Christian? How do I be good? I follow the law. The law is a path to righteousness. No, it's not. What is it? It's a tutor. It's a teacher. To teach you what? It's to teach us how to be good. No! Because it said the law can't lead you to righteousness. I thought the law was to teach me how to be good. No, he said it can't. What does the law teach you? It teaches you that you need Jesus. That's what he said. He said, verse 24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to not goodness, not righteousness, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified, which is made acceptable by good works. Nope. By faith, by trusting Jesus. So I use this formulation. The thermometer, the medicine, the problem. We've, with COVID, because one of the big things that is a sign that you might have COVID is you get a fever. So you go all these places and they've got those, and those new thermometers, they are a marvel to me because I am a Neanderthal now, I'm old. So when they hold this thing up and they don't even touch me with it, and beep, and we've got your temperature. Because it used to be when, when I was growing up, I'm just old enough that when I grew up, the question of we're going to take your temperature, the question was which end will we use? Not of the thermometer, of you. Now they're just like, can I have your forehead? I'm like, by the way, big fan of that progression. So when they take your temperature, they use a thermometer. I still remember. Don't talk. Keep your tongue down. And then you go, you know, that thing. So you put the thermometer in, and it says, you have a fever. <gasps> well, that's what thermometers are good for, to tell you you have a fever. You're sick. Because when things invade your body, viruses and different things, your body's like, oh, we should try to kill this. Let's bake it. Let's make it hot because viruses don't do well in heat, so we'll heat it up, try to kill the bad stuff in you so your body gets hot. So, oh, I'm sick, my body's hot. So now what do you do? Oh, I've got a fever. Well, we need to treat this. I should go buy some more thermometers. Let's go get about six of them. Mm. This will help because if one thermometer is good, well, then six would be, you know, if less is more, think about how much more more would be, right? So now I have six thermometers. Now I'll be better, right? No. What does the thermometer do? It tells you you're sick. It does not help you get over being sick. 
All a thermometer does is point you to a need. What do you do? I've got a fever. I should take aspirin or Tylenol. I should take something to treat my fever. So you take medicine. The medicine is not the thermometer. What's wrong with us? We're sick. We're ill. What's wrong with us? It's called sin. Sin is the disease that we suffer from, and we all got it. But when sin becomes active in your life, you develop a fever. How do you know you're sick? You have a thermometer. It's called the law. The law reveals that you've got a problem. That's the purpose of the law. The Bible says the purpose of the law is to reveal your problem. It's to show you sin. The, but the law is your thermometer. The thermometer does not make you better. It just tells you you're sick. What is the medicine, according to Paul here? The medicine is Jesus. But what do we do? I'm sick. I need some more thermometers. And that, after a while, exhausts you because you're trying so hard to be good. And it's just like using a lot more thermometers to try to not be feverish. It doesn't work because the thermometer is not there to make you better because the only solution to sin is not moral reform, not greater effort of self-discipline. The only solution to sin is Jesus. And so when you use the law, so you say, I committed adultery in my head. That's not good. So now what should I do? You got to run to Jesus. I got to go to Jesus. He's going to fix this. I can't. I have this ongoing problem with sin and the solution is Jesus. Now this messes with us because we're all into therapeutic deism, which is God came to help me be better in myself. But Jesus came and said, I'm going to replace your life with mine. Trust me. Now, we have a lot more to pack out. So when I come back from break, we're going to dive in in the second half of Galatians, and Paul's going to show the day-to-day, some of how this plays out in practical terms. Because we all want to know, but what do I do? What do I do? So I want to follow God. What do I need to do? And we'll, we'll get to how Paul's going to answer that question in the second half of Galatians. Feel free to read ahead. you got a Bible. But every part of our spiritual life, everything we do, from serving to fighting sin to just living every day, Everything has to start with, it is finished. Jesus paid it. It has to start there. Otherwise, it's just going to be your own effort. As I've worked through and now needing to take a break, because just, you know, getting worn out with serving, it's easy for me to go, oh, God expects me to do this. God expects me to do this. If I don't do this, I'm not pleasing to Him. And God's like, you are pleasing to me because of what I did, not because of what you do. You are pleasing to me because what I did is the cross, the cross, the cross. And I go, okay, everything I do, I start with, I am pleasing to God because of His work. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm right with God? Not because I've achieved anything. 
but because I know he died for me. And every day of your life, you're not renting your standing with God. It was given to you. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. You're not leasing it. You're not renting it. You're not paying a mortgage for it. It is paid in full. Those were his words on the cross. And if you trust his words paid in full, then you're right with God. How you're going to live, yeah, it's going to matter. But not because of your standing with God. You're going to live because of what he did. Not because you're trying to earn his favor. We have to start there and then everything comes out of that. We need to center our daily lives on trusting the work of God. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this gift. Behold what manner of love you would have for us that we would just be called the children of God because we trust you. We are bad at trusting you because we want to do it. We want to earn it. We want to be good enough. We want to think of ourselves as contributing, of paying something towards it. And yet, Lord, we are saved by your work, not ours. We just need to trust you. We need to stop thinking that we're going to earn your favor and allow you to give us righteousness. Lord, be with us as we, this little bit later, unpack how we do this. As we continue to learn from Paul what it means to live in you. But Lord, I just pray that everyone here, whether they're watching on the stream or whether they're sitting here in this room, that they would know with confidence that if they are trusting your work, that you have accepted them because it is finished. That if they are not trusting their efforts, but trusting yours, that they are saved. And that their life each day will be built on the security and just the mind-blowing appreciation that you would love us so much that you would die so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be acceptable. Not in what we do, not in who we are, but in who you are and what you have done. So Lord, Embed us in that peace and in that beauty. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.